Welcome to another class in the bunker. Uh, grateful to have all of you here as always, and uh, let's dive in. One of the things that I have noticed, uh, we're recording this during uh, Thanksgiving week, and it has been refreshing, and I've heard a lot of people say this, that we've kind of gone from the rancor of an election and the polarization that was there to following President Nelson's advice about giving thanks and gratitude. And suddenly my Facebook feed and other social media is awash in these wonderful, grateful posts. And it's just been like a wash of warm water. You know, it's just wonderful to, to feel that and, and to be aware of that. Um, and just, I, I can't tell you how much I have really kind of enjoyed having that contrast between what we just went through and having this wave of gratitude, especially as we headed into Thanksgiving and then ultimately into the holidays. One of the things I've noticed, though, is that it brings up a little bit of an ongoing tension that's always kind of existed, and I don't know that there's necessarily a, a great way to resolve it. And that is that as each one of us are busy putting those things out there that we are grateful for, and that involves oftentimes a lot of family uh, pictures, I'm always aware of those that perhaps look at those kind of things and with a little bit of being wistful because they don't have that. Uh, and there's some sense that what, what we are grateful for, somebody else might be envious of. And what somebody else has and they're grateful for, we might be a little bit more envious of. And, and there's a tension to that. And so the question is always, how much do we publicly pronounce our, the things we're grateful for aware that we are perhaps pronouncing it in front of people that don't that haven't been quite as blessed with some of the things that we have and and vice versa um, and yet does that mean that we're supposed to temper somehow our gratitude and not be as grateful or not as public uh, with the things that uh, we're grateful for um, one of those ongoing running problems is one of those, for instance, that I've always been aware of in, in, our, in our fast and testimony meetings where, uh, where uh, I might be sitting there having lost one of my or both of my parents to, to cancer, for instance, and have somebody else in fast and testimony uh, grateful that uh, the Lord cured their family member of cancer. Or that I might get up and proclaim this and this about my life and somebody else who hasn't had that doesn't quite have that. Um, and, and we have this tension between what we have, what we're grateful for, and, and then recognizing the things that we don't have. And maybe part of that has been uh, because one of the blessings that I've, I've had over the last few years is that I have been able to, to speak and, and spend some time with those that are uh, single in the church, either by divorce or widowdom, or in some cases have never been married. And I've been able to be on cruises with them and, and conferences and, and things, and just been aware that they, they are aware that they don't fit the mold, they don't fit the norm of what a lot of other people have. They're not always aware of how grateful I am for them. That 
in their solitude on the back row or coming into church as a single parent uh, or someone who's never been able to have kids the way that they wanted to. I'm grateful for their faithfulness. They, they set an example for me of people that have hung on when it would have been easier to let go. And they've continued to be there and to do the things that they need to do. And I see their hope and I see their faith and it, and it encourages me. And, and they don't always feel like they bless the world through their singleness. And it wouldn't matter whether it was that or through some kind of mental illness or some kind of physical disorder. Or in some way it may look from the outside like they haven't been blessed. Or that the Lord somehow didn't come along and fix them or heal them in a way uh, that maybe we would have liked. Um, and it, it reminds me of something that uh, I read earlier from a, a noted scholar. And she did a good job, I thought, Deidre Green, uh, something we talked about uh, a few months ago. And that was something she identified as a sacred Saturday. And a, a sacred Saturday was that stretch in between uh, the events around the cross at the, at the death of the Savior and the disciples that had hung on and been there and maybe in some cases were still hoping for the fact that, it, that maybe he would climb off the cross or that would be the moment that he would call down angels or that would be the moment that the kingdom of God would be ushered in with a few more swords and a few more trumpets than the quiet forgiveness of sins and the Romans still being in charge. But still they watched all of that where they got to uh, that Good Friday uh, where the, the atonement was wrought. And then in our mind, uh, we tend to hop all the way over that to Easter Sunday and the empty tomb. It's no wonder that Jacob in the Book of Mormon says, think on his death, view his death. Be aware of this and don't move too quickly past his suffering and the things that, that he went through. Uh, but we want to hop and go there uh, for obvious reasons. I love the idea of a sacred Saturday, though. Uh, and that is that, that sacred Saturday is that Saturday, that Sabbath day for those disciples who watched him die on the cross and the tomb hadn't quite been opened yet. And they spent all day, I think, on a Sabbath where they couldn't really work or go very far, staring at each other and wondering, did it really happen? Is it going to happen? Is it different than what I thought? And you get this marvelous mix of faith and fear and trust and doubt coming together into a, into a mix that they had to deal with. I have faith that he'll be risen, but what if he doesn't? And where is my faith? And until he actually stepped into that room on that Monday and they could see him and touch him, it was still a fear and faith kind of thing. People were starting to see him, but maybe they made it up. Maybe that's just what they wanted. And the doubts were there. And I'm, I'm very aware that for an awful lot of us, 
we perhaps live in this sacred Saturday moment, halfway between faith and fear, halfway between belief and trust and worry and despair. And, and at every, any given moment that moves back and forth based on what's happening in our life at a particular moment. We may be going through this pandemic at the moment thinking, I, I, I'm looking forward to the day we'll be through it. Maybe we're not. I think things will go back, but I'm not sure. Will they be different? Will we make it or not? And, and it's an in-between uncertainness that really tries us to our core. And and in a sacred Saturday, we really find out who we are. And we find out where our faith is at a particular moment when the, the withdrawals out of our emotional bank are far greater than than the deposits as we emotionally get drained right down to our core. And I think it's a reminder that always, always, always uh, we have this process of um, we're saying as did that uh, father so many years ago, Lord, I believe Help thou my unbelief. I am somewhere between belief and unbelief. I've got some. Help me with the part that I don't have. I can stand on this part, but please fill me on the other end and complete it based on maybe the part that I, that I do believe. And for us, those sacred Saturdays is that battle, that, that trial, not just of our life, but of our faith. And not just of our belief in God, but our belief if God is there. Sacred Saturdays. And recognizing that those are sacred to us. They're not just a necessary part to wind our way through that wilderness uh, of emotion, but they are critical to our growth and critical to our trust in ourselves. Um, And let's, let's keep that in mind as we kind of move forward now. To, to where we want to go because now, now it starts as we move a little bit farther into the Old Testament in the land of the Chaldeans at the resident of my fathers I Abraham saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence one of the great ironic statements in all of scripture uh, from Abraham 1 again we've talked about the, the old uh, Hebrew myth of, of Abraham uh, smashing his father's idols. Terah was a shopkeeper of idols and he smashed them all except the big one. And remember that dad comes in and says, what happened to all my idols? And he says, the big one did it, Abraham says. And Terah says, no, it's just a stone. And Abraham says, exactly. You know, go back to worshiping uh, God and and then uh, there's so much anger that that comes with that and even the book of Abraham suggests a possible sacrifice uh, possible sacrifice that Abraham says ah, I think it was needful for me to find another place of residence I gotta go somewhere else I gotta get out of town now we are blessed when we look at the book of 
Abraham and Abraham in the Old Testament to have two canons of scripture that give us information and knowledge about the life and experiences and sacrifices of Abraham. We're looking at his own sacred Saturdays moments. Um, now, as we look at this, I want to take just a second and, and backpedal for just a moment because there, there remains always a lot of discussion about uh, the book of Abraham. And in some cases with the book of Abraham, almost what we don't know is bigger than what we do know. And we, because we know that in uh, 1835 that uh, Joseph was able to purchase um, some mummies from uh, a man by the name of Michael Chandler, who was kind of on a mummy touring kind of thing. And he'd heard that there was a man in uh, Kirtland that was actually... Uh, uh, transcribing and translating ancient records. So he brings the, the mummies. Joseph borrows the money to buy the mummies. He believes when he opens the papyrus that he's looking at the actual writings of Abraham. And he says so, that these were the writings of Abraham. He sits down to translate the book of Abraham off of those papyrus. Uh, and then that's basically how we get it and then it's recorded in the times and seasons both some of the images off of that papyrus and Joseph Smith's translation. Uh, problem number one, it's the word translation. Joseph Smith talked about the fact that he had translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. We think of the word translation as I'm going to translate from Spanish to English or Greek or Hebrew to English and that means that I know both languages and I can make a one-to-one -one translation into a different language of what it actually means. Joseph Smith never knew Reformed Egyptian and he never knew actual uh, Egyptian. In fact, we're aware that he never used the plates physically to translate the Book of Mormon. Most of the time, the plates were underneath a handkerchief or a cloth there on the table. At one point, one of the translators said the plates were in the, in the woods, not far from the house, and he was translating. Uh, for Joseph Smith, the, what he called translation was actually revelation. The Book of Mormon was revealed to Joseph Smith by the gift and power of God. He never knew Reformed Egyptian. He never knew actual Egyptian as well. Though Joseph believed in all likelihood that he was translating as he was looking at that papyrus, uh, we know now from multiple sources uh, that this is a funeral text because uh, we now can read via uh, the Rosetta Stone that was discovered almost about the time of Joseph Smith. We were then able to start learning Egyptian and therefore translating Egyptian. But at the time that Joseph received these mummies in 1835, nobody in the United States could have actually read what was on them. They were starting to learn and starting to understand, but knowledge was just not there. So Joseph is receiving a revelation that becomes the, the uh, book of Abraham that becomes so valuable uh, to us. And we could do a lot more on this and perhaps may do it at another time uh, about the, the group of W.W. W. Phelps and others that were playing with Egyptian 
words and trying to figure out what they meant, and they wrote them down in a, in a book um, that has sometimes been said, well, this is Joseph Smith fooling around. It wasn't Joseph Smith fooling around. It was W.W. Phelps and others. And it actually led Joseph Smith to go find somebody who could teach him Hebrew, Joshua Satius, so that he could translate Egyptian as well. But that said, side note, let's go back to uh, the book of Abraham. And, find, and finding that there was greater happiness, Abraham says, and peace and rest for me, I sought for the blessings of the fathers. Now, let me stop for a sec. Uh, for those of us that, that uh, may have struggled in this area. Joseph, or, uh, Abraham was raised by an apostate father. And because of that, Abraham, in his desire to gain the blessings of the fathers, couldn't go to his own father. He was raised by an apostate father. Um, think about how many of you may have, sometimes when you're having your sacred Saturday moments and you're looking around the, the ward and other people seem to talk about their sainted mother and father that taught them the gospel and read the Book of Mormon with them when they were young and and your family was not members or your family had left the church or your family was abusive or destructive and you can be envious that other people seem to have had a leg up an advantage because of their upbringing. Well you might find some comfort in the fact that so did Abraham. Abraham had to go elsewhere to get the blessings he was seeking because he couldn't get it from his own father. But he was going to seek the blessings of the fathers, uh, Melchizedek, Noah, Seth, all of those, uh, the blessings of the fathers. And, and, then he, and then he says happily, I became a rightful heir, an heir to their blessings, not because of the physical uh, relationship with his father but because of the spiritual heirship that would come uh, the blessings he was receiving a high priest holding the right belonging to the fathers it was conferred upon me from the fathers most likely from Melchizedek so he's being able to say in spite of the things that I had to deal with I was able to get great blessings and receive the thing I was looking for even though I didn't grow up in the best of circumstances. So uh, as we as we do look at that, let's take a, a brief look at some of his his story uh, and 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 quickly without trying to belabor this uh, too much. So here, here is, is this man, because of seeking the blessings of the fathers and because he was pushing back against his father and his apostate ways, uh, the Lord uh, is going to tell him that he needs to leave his ancestors' land. He's going to need to go elsewhere. And so he's going to be sent into a strange land. Uh, and that's like so many of these is going to be drawn into Egypt, uh, the most sophisticated place uh, 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 on the planet at the time. But before he gets there, he's going to then come from 
uh, Ur, and he's going to come down into the land of the Chaldees. He's going to have to leave. But in spite of that, he learns to live righteously, teaching the gospel, which is then rejected by the people he's trying to teach. Part of that responsibility that he has as a holder of the blessings of the fathers and the priesthood and the rights thereof is that he's supposed to declare the gospel and in, and in the area in which he's in, that's pretty rife to be um, the, where the pushback is really going to be there and he's going to have a hard time doing it and staying alive. Uh, ask Enoch, ask Noah, uh, and Melchizedek and others. But he lives righteously teaching the gospel. Uh, as a result of that, he has a heavenly vision, this theophany, where God is going to now come to him and teach him many things. And we have in the book of Abraham some of what he was taught in heavenly visions. But it starts, in essence, as it does with so many prophets, with this heavenly vision. This is his calling, that he's going to have something specific to do. There, are, there may be others teaching the gospel, but a dispensation of the gospel is going to be headed up by Abraham. And to do that, he needs to get this the heavenly vision. Okay, Now, as he does that, though, he's going to be so overwhelmed by that that he wants to build an altar to commemorate the moment. Think about uh, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when uh, the Savior's full glory is revealed and they see Elijah and they see John and, and all of that. And Peter is so struck by that that he says, we should build an altar. Well, this is very Old Testament-ish. Um, uh, Abraham's uh, grandson Jacob will do the same thing at Peniel when the Lord of hosts, Al Shaddai, appears to him and he's so overwhelmed and touched by what he has received covenant-wise and blessing-wise and, and by what he's now been taught in this uh, connection with God that he wants to build an altar and commemorate this moment called an Ebenezer. It's that, it's that altar that is celebrating what has happened here. Wouldn't be surprising to me if we find that on the, on the same spot as the burning bush for Moses, that perhaps he left an altar there uh, to commemorate that his, his own calling, his, his own Abrahamic vision moment that the, the burning bush uh, uh, technically was for Moses. Okay? So he wants to build an altar to commemorate that. Okay. Now, as part of that theophany, that, that glorious vision, he's going to be given promises and covenants that the Lord is going to say, I will give these things to you if you'll roll forward and do these things now based on this knowledge and understanding and your new calling and position in the, in the kingdom. Now, I think it's really, really critical to point out here that one of, what, one of which Abraham is going to receive is a land of promise. And we know this, right? We talk about the Abrahamic covenant. Part of it is a, is a blessing of land. 
And the other one is going to be posterity, that he's going to have this righteous generation uh, and, and let numerous as the sands of the sea uh, in, in uh, return for the things that he will do. And the Lord is going to make a covenant with him. Uh, side note, uh, remember up to this point, the Lord was making covenants with all of the children of Abraham or uh, of Adam. And he would do that and he wanted to do that uh, and it didn't happen at Babel and it didn't happen with Noah. But in this case, He's going to say, I will make it through your family. And now, and your family will now go forward and bless everybody else. He's, the Lord is changing how he's going to extend the covenant into the world. And it's going to come through a single family, Abraham, Isaac, and then Israel will be that covenant people with the responsibility to bless all the nations of the earth. Okay? So, these are two of the great blessings, and priesthood is the other. But the land of promise and posterity. Can I point something out? Abraham spent his entire life as a Bedouin, as a wanderer. He never built a city. He lived all of his life in a tent. For a while he had some land in Canaan, but he gave the best part of the land uh, down south to Lot because their shepherds were fighting. He was given the promise of land and he never saw it nor enjoyed it. He was given the, the blessings of posterity and for the vast majority of his life he had none. Most of his life after the receiving of these promises was spent as a sacred Saturday for him. Halfway in between, um, I've been given promises, but I haven't seen them yet. They haven't materialized. And then when he does have a son, it's not through Sarah and the problems there, and it, it actually is going to be Ishmael, and finally he's going to have Isaac, uh, but that comes much later in life. And so he spends most of his life teaching the gospel, blessing the lives of others, living in his sacred Saturday where it hasn't yet been realized uh, for him. Ultimately, though, he will have two sons who will fight each other over that land and the promise of the land and who should get the land between Isaac and Ishmael. Now, can I just point something out too? I know that our, our uh, Come Follow Me study this year has been the Book of Mormon. And we're working our way through the Book of Ether and here we are and we're looking at all this. You recognize a pattern here? Does this pattern fit anybody else you could think of like right off the top of your head? Uh, I'll wait, wait a second for the class to get it. Uh, okay. Yes, you in the back. Yes, of course. It's Lehi. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, he needed to leave the, the land of his ancestors and his inheritance. Because why? He was, teach, he was living righteously. He was teaching the gospel. He was rejected. His life was threatened. He has a heavenly vision. He then builds an altar to celebrate that while he's living in his tent. Uh, Nephi says, my father dwelt in a tent, and he could have said, comma, 
just like Abraham, and he built an altar just like Abraham. He received promises and covenants of a land of promise and posterity just like Abraham. Guess what? He has two sons who will fight each other over the promised land just like Abraham. You need to see very carefully how, how the Lord positioned it so that Lehi became a second Abraham. With the, with the heavenly pattern in play and very, very close. And then I believe that it, that it would not have been lost on Lehi when he exults to his sons, I have been given a land of promise. And he could have said, just like Father Abraham, and saw the significance of what he was being called to do. Makes it easy to see why Nephi uh, many scholars have pointed out saw himself as a second Joseph uh, in in the way that he handled the trials in, in his life. But anyway, there's the story of of Abraham. Okay, now those are all the things that that he went through. Now that said, th that then leaves us with certain challenges, I believe. That um, if if we'll stop for a second and take a look at uh, let's look back here for just a second. Sometimes I think we make the mistake of uh, and we've talked about this before. One of the reasons I wanted to look at the Old Testament was that we tend to look at the Old Testament as like a series of uh, stories and tools that we'll, use, we'll reach in, we'll use that one, and then we'll put it back when we get done. We don't see the whole unifying piece. And so if I, if I were to ask in a class, tell me about Abraham, that is actually one of those little stories. Oh, let's see, there's Daniel in the lion's den, uh, there's Samson, there is, oh wait, yes, there's Abraham and Isaac. Let me grab that one. Uh, let's talk about trial. Yes, on Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac, and there's this, and there was a ram in the thicket and everything. Got the story? Okay, let me put it back on the shelf, and now we'll move on, never touching that again. Uh, when actually the entire life of Abraham, with all of this pattern duplicated in Lehi, should be something that we're looking at the whole thing in total that his entire life of the rejection and teaching the gospel and the many, many ways in which this traveling Bedouin prophet teaching from a, from a tent, having to travel into Egypt and back and having his own life threatened, um, and all of the numerous trials that he went through, that sacred Saturday life that he lived, is, is worth far more than just a quick mention of Abraham and Isaac, an Abrahamic test, as powerful as that is, and probably that we will discuss probably next week. But I think we need to look at the whole body of all of this to understand just how closely perhaps our life might mean at times we have to travel. At times we may be teaching the gospel to those that may not want to hear it. And those people may be members of our own family. 
that we are entitled to have a heavenly vision, that we can go spend time at an altar at the temple, that we will there in the temple we will receive promises and covenants and promises of to inherit the earth and to have eternal posterity. Uh, and that we're going to have to be able to, that sometimes there'll be a fight and kind of the war in heaven battle that will come as we take on celestial glory and what it takes for us to get there. That in, that in very truth, if we will see this, we also have our sacred Saturdays because in some extent, we also become Abraham's. We also become those that need to be able to seek for the blessings of the fathers and make the changes that we need to make in ourselves and in those around us. So don't move too quickly through through Abraham. In, in essence, this is our this is our um, uh, destiny is to do so much of, of what he did as well. So with that in mind, uh, let's take a look then finally at, at the challenges that I think uh, beset us. First of all, we are being asked um, to learn to believe and obey in all circumstances. It is really easy when things are going well for us to obey and to be blessed as we're surrounded by others. Um, I've been, I've been picturing that in a sense we kind of are living under this COVID blanket at the moment. And there's a lot going on under here that we're not seeing as people are shuffling back and forth and perhaps faith is failing as some people are leaving the church or that they're falling inactive or finding it easier to not go to church or their faith is struggling and we're not touching, we're not having touch points with them nearly quite so much. When the blanket of this finally comes off, I think we're going to find a lot of damage underneath, um, similar to what we saw uh, when, when a lot of us went into New Orleans uh, after Hurricane Katrina and the waters receded and we found kind of the, the damage done to the houses and the, and the superstructure uh, in there. And, and in some cases, they just had to kind of tear those houses down and rebuild them. I think there's a great rebuilding project uh, coming in the next few years trying to recover families and wards and stakes uh, from the ravages of a, uh, a virus that has temporarily separated us uh, one from another. And so we're going to be asked to believe and obey even in these most trying separated moments of, uh, of Zoom thanksgivings. Uh, if you will. So our real ch challenge is going to be to continue it even when things aren't ideal. Do we, do we chug on? Do we push forward in spite of all of this? And even more then, our grateful gifts, the things that we have been blessed with, are meant to help those that currently aren't as blessed that perhaps those things that we are gra grateful for, those things that we might be tempted to post as our Facebook post to say, what is it I'm grateful for? And I've seen, 
I've seen people posting all kinds of things that they're grateful for. They put those out there. I want the world to know this is my gratitude. I'm grateful to have this or this or this. And I'm going to have you know that. Those are it's great gratitude, but it's also gifts that we have received meant for blessing the lives of others. And especially those that may not have been, been blessed with a particular set of gifts we've been given. I would add one more to this, and probably should have, uh, that it also is incumbent that their grateful gifts are meant to help us who may not have been currently as blessed. We like to be able to bless others. Sometimes the challenge for some of us is allowing other people to bless us through their gifts so that we're able to, to uh, bless one another as we go along. Finally, we have to be able to receive with gratitude those blessings that help us in our sacred Saturdays as we give it and do it without judgment and or pride. And I think the Sacred Saturday experience is meant to hollow us out a little bit. And we struggle sometimes more in periods of prosperity to be able to reach out and help and bless, but do it without judgment and do it without pride and do it because we recognize as King Benjamin uh, lovingly always pointed out uh, that we are all beggars and we beg to receive and we beg to give and we beg in our sacred Saturdays. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that as we study powerfully the book of Abraham and the life of Abraham that we see his entire life of struggle and faithfulness in spite of his wanderings, in spite of living in a tent, in not always the best circumstances, and that we do that and we bless others as we are so learning. And I pray that we can do that, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.